Titus chapter 2. Paul is giving instructions to this young pastor of how to put things in order there at the church in the island of Crete. Uh, it was a very difficult place because the people were very pagan. It was an uh, island when the Greeks took over, they sort of dominated it. And then the Romans took over, they sort of dominated it. And the sailors sort of came there for a good time. And the people uh, were basically just sort of a derelict people. They, uh, in language and customs, and uh, the, the way they thought, they were just basically some lazy, uh, disgusting people who had no picture of growing in character and had no uh, uh, examples of growing in character. And now Christianity has come, and Titus is sort of just letting the church sort of go down to that low common denominator of character with all the other guys and uh, and he is saying no 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 not at all that's not the way the church is to be and he talked about other leaders and he, he left last time in chapter 1 verse 16 by saying they profess to know God but in their works if you just look at their lifestyle they deny him being abominable disobedient and disqualified for every good work but as for you, chapter 2, verse 1. But as for you, in contrast, Pastor Titus and every one of us are called into leadership. So this epistle very much applies to all of us as ministers. Speak the things, or as you speak, as you live. In other words, let your life, let the life's message that you're speaking out. Not necessarily just words, but in your actions. In other words, let your life... Uh, in your works, not deny him, but quite the opposite. Let it uh, be things that are proper for sound doctrine. So in other words, your life in and of itself would be a message of sound doctrine. And this is the way everybody in the church needs to grow in the Lord to that point. For example, the older men, uh, that the older men would be sober, uh, Reverent, temperate, sound in faith. Um, it tells us there that they would uh, be in love and, and in patience. So for you, Titus, you need to have sound doctrine or healthy doctrine. And then you need to help these older guys to see that they also need to be sound in doctrine, sound in faith. And as they are, they need to then come to that life style of being sober or, or temperate, not to uh, be frivolous, not to say, you know, I'm okay, you're okay, live and let live. No, not to have that kind of heart whatsoever, but have a meaning to wake up and realize their life has a purpose and life is short, to be reverent or to, to live in a, in a dignified way. This culture and creed in particular, they, they had no dignity. They weren't a dignified people. And he's saying, in Christ, we need to act dignified, temperate, or to have self-restraint. In other words, not just to say anything you want, or eat anything you want, or drink anything you want, or act any old way you want. But you need to be temperate, as again, modeling the doctrine of Christ. And sound in faith, again, to have healthy doctrine, to have a healthy faith. Right doctrine leads for right living. Wrong doctrine leads for wrong living. 
And a healthy doctrine will lead to a healthy lifestyle. And often, as uh, we have that expression, the proof is in the pudding. You can see what people really believe by how they live. And he's saying, if you're living out the doctrine of Christ, that should lead to a godly living and to a godly life. And that should be evident. And then in the love in their life. And again, in Galatians 5.22, it says, The fruit, singular, the fruit of the Spirit is love. So there's one fruit, and that's love. And from that one fruit, as you bite into it, there's all kinds of beautiful taste and incense. There's joy, there's peace, there's patience, there's kindness, there's goodness, there's faithfulness, there's gentleness, and there's self-control. So let these guys' lives be an example of love. And then patience, which is that constant endurance. Remember in the story of Job, Finally, at the end, the young guy speaks up and he says, I thought wisdom came with age, and evidently not. So listen to me and gain some wisdom here. David says in Psalms 119, I'm wiser than my teachers. I'm wiser than the ancients, because your word is my delight. The Bible says in Psalms 19 that the word of God makes wise the simple or the foolish. The word of God takes us from our foolishness into a respectable, dignified life that gives glory unto God. And so as we grow and get more set in our ways, he's saying you don't want to be a foolish old man or a perverted old man or a silly old man. You want to grow as you get more and more uh, set in your ways. You're, You're set in a good doctrine. And you're not going to be moved from it. You're going to be set in a way of love. You're going to be set in a way of temperance. You're going to be set in a way of being patient. And I'll tell you what. The old godly saints truly are the pillars of the church. Guys that have been truly walking with the Lord and serving the Lord and reading the Bible for 60 years every day. I'll tell you what. There's nothing like the stability and the power they bring to a church. But people have just been hanging out and not been delighting in the Word, not growing in the Word. Uh, They've just sort of been hanging out for 60 years. All of a sudden, they don't wake up in their 60s or 70s or 80s and all of a sudden have this wisdom. It's something that either you've grown in and you've established your life in and as you keep walking on that same trail, you've dug a trench of a radical, deep life in the Lord. And so give these older men that vision. Man, just imagine some of you guys that are in your teens right now, in your early 20s or or 30s. You're over 40? Forget it. (laughs) Too late. No. I mean, but picture yourself. 20 years, 50 years, 60 years in the Word every day. How many life experiences of sharing the Lord? How many awesome verses the Lord's going to be showing to your heart? And then to be able to have at 60 years old all of this radical knowledge, experience, a life been dedicated, just the rich power of God in your life. That's the vision that you have as a believer, adding more and more, giving more and more to the body of Christ the older you get. Also, the older women. Well, how old is an old woman? I have no idea. <laughs> Not going to go there. 
but I'm sure it's at least over 130. I have no idea, but anything under that's young. <laughs> but the older women likewise, that they be reverent in their behavior. Women have a lot to complain about, and rightly so. But it says they need to not tell everything they think and they know, even though it's right. Not slanders. Interesting that that Greek word there for slander is the word diabolos. Sound familiar? It's the word Satan. <laughs> the actual word devil, diabolos, means accuser of the brethren. Don't be an accuser of people. Don't accuse people of saying or doing the wrong things. And so the idea is these older women now that their kids are gone and they have more time, they're, they're dabbling and hearing more and, you know, sort of um, they're a very instrumental part of the grapevine system of getting information out. And, and he's saying, don't you be a part of that grapevine system. Don't you be a part of, you know, in the inquiring minds that want to know. That's not the right behavior. And, and don't be the accuser, the slanderer uh, in that system. Nor given to much wine. As we get older, our bodies start to ache and hurt more. And today, I, I've seen it on numerous occasions, not just women, but men also, who get addicted to various painkillers and get drunk sometimes and get start drinking more and more because they're trying to lessen their pain often it's the pain in their heart I have seen when you are free in your heart free in your spirit that often the pain in your body is minimal not that it's not there it's just you're so focused on the things of God you're sort of ignoring the pain going on but I have seen many times Marriages run because uh, the gal or the guy, they get addicted on painkillers. They get addicted on prescriptions the doctors are giving them. But yet it begins to weird them out and it begins to cause all kinds of problems in the marriage and in their health and so forth. So as you get older and as you get achy, don't, don't start saying, you know, a little more wine kills a little more of the pain. Don't go there. But instead, focus on being a teacher of good things. Again, the, give them that vision. What's that vision out there? That vision is, as you are growing in the Lord and walking with the Lord day in, day out, serving the Lord, growing in the knowledge of God, as you get older and your kids are beginning to leave the house and now you are finally got a little bit of free time, now you have something of wisdom to share. Now, our culture, much like Crete's culture, it's just not that way yet, is it? I find that a lot of the older people in our church have not been walking with the Lord that long, often. Many of them have been saved when they were in their 40s or 50s or, or so forth, and they don't have a whole lifetime of following the Lord. And that's why when I go to speak to the youth groups, and I've given that vision to my kids over and over again, is to start serving the Lord now in your youth, realizing God can use you now in your youth, and give them that vision in their 20s 
and their 30s and their 40s and their 50s to give them that vision and instill it in their hearts when they are 11 years old, 12 years old, 18 years old, 20 years old, so they can see where they're heading. The Bible says without a vision, the people perish or literally meander. They, they sort of get off on tangents because they don't know exactly the bullseye where they're shooting. And that's where we're heading. And uh, time's going by so quickly and, and uh, we're getting older. A lot of the, us that started 18 years ago that were a bunch of 20-year-old people. I started the church when I was 24. And so now here we are years later becoming those older people that we are beginning now to have that generation of older people that are able to speak to the younger people. And so you gals need to have your life focused and filled up, not with idle chatter or slander or inquiring minds that want to know, but to be focused on giving yourself away. Giving away now, not just in service, but the wisdom that the Lord has given you. In particular, he says here in verse 24, to the younger women you need to teach, that they admonish the younger women to love their husbands and to love their children. So one place that women have is uh, to pour their life out into the younger women. And that's the way our women's ministry is designed, where they're helping them grow in the knowledge of the word, and then once a month they go to each other's, uh, to an older woman's house and and then they have some time there to show them practical things of uh, cooking and just fellowshipping together, and talking about the various issues in the home, of trying to keep on top of cleaning and, and the cooking and the various things. So just try to encourage them as women to grow uh, in the Lord as women in the home. But another place we discover where the women can pour their lives out to, even as younger women, Hold your finger here in Titus and turn uh, to the left just a couple of pages of 1 Timothy chapter 2. First Timothy chapter 2, starting there in verse 8. I desire therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. So, First of all, that men would do that which is just against nature for them, and that is to pray. Men are more men of action. Want me to go fill up some sandbags and build a wall? Let's do it. But to get on our knees and spend an hour in prayer, it's, it's hard for men to quit being boys and settle down and, and to realize the importance of the power of prayer. And so not to lift up your hands at some guy on the freeway in wrath, not to lift up your, ha your hands going, why me, God, oy vey, you know. Um, <laughs> but to be lifting up your hands just because God wants you to in, in a heart of surrender and worship. Now in a like manner also that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing. Often gals in wanting to feel appreciated, to be noticed often by their own husbands, keep physically trying to change their characteristics to get their attention. But don't make that outward thing your, your, your focus, but make an inward change your focus. But what is proper for women professing godliness with good works? Let a woman learn in silence with all submission, and do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, 
but to be in silence. For Adam was formed first, and then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. So in the church service, again, women can find places to put their energies into. So, hey, they need a lot of help down at the church. I'll go down and try to run the church and run the ministries and run all the things. And, and they would do a great job at it. I, I don't doubt that. Women are better organizers. Women have that keen eye to how to make you know, a house a home or to make a church a, a very eloquent place. I have no doubts about that. But rather than doing that and getting involved in all of the different, you know, Heart and Lung Association, PTA, and all the various great organizations, all the great things out there, he's saying, don't do that. But rather just sit in silence and grow in the Lord and, and, and allow the Lord to keep working deep in your heart because that's the pattern that God set up. God made the woman for Adam. Not the woman was made first and he made Adam for the woman. The woman was to come alongside to help Adam to be what it was he was to be. And so in the church, the women are the silent support, if you would. That they are there in prayer, there in encouragement to help the men to do the work of the ministry. To help the men to be men. To help the men be leaders. And so they are to be that strength. We've had a saying in our culture that's quickly fading it said, behind every great man is what? A great woman. And how true it is. And that's the picture that God gave. But nevertheless, in verse 15, she, the woman, she's not just to be a pond with no outlet. There's a place for her to have an outlet. She will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, holiness, and self-control. So if they continue in that life of godliness they will find themselves pouring their life into the children. So where it says they're saved, the word saved doesn't mean saved for salvation. It also means saved just from hardship or difficulty. Or, and in this case, it's saying they're saved and that they have an outlet, and that is being able to focus on pouring their life into their kids. In 2 Timothy, Paul says, In Timothy, I see in you that same faith that I saw in your mother and in your grandmother. And then he says, in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, remember those things that you have learned and whom you have learned them that from childhood, and the word childhood there is the word brephos, that means infant. Remember who you learned them from, your infancies, and you know it's a solid doctrine that will now, if you will lean on those things you learned in your infancy as a, as a child, is now the very things you need to be a pastor. It's now the very things that are, have equipped you to lead this church. Where did he learn those things in his childhood? From his mother, from his grandmother. And so the gals aren't to be trying to run the church, although they would do a much better job than a bunch of clods. But they are to come to church in silence and in reverence. And where are they to be speaking? To the kids. It's interesting, if you look in 1 Timothy 5, it says that those who are widows indeed, one of the qualifications is that they never had children themselves, but the next qualification is that they raised up children. <laughs> they never had children, but yet they raised up children. And so we see there that it's God's desire that the women would pour their hearts, pour their lives into the kids, whether it's your own kid or your grandkid or your 
nephew or your niece or the neighbor kids or the church kids, that you gals, as God is speaking to your heart and deepening your heart, that you have that ministry to pour your life into those kids. And as you get older, you have another outlet, and that is to the younger women. And to, and to help them to focus on their husbands and to focus on their children. Literally there, back in Titus chapter 2, verse 4, it says that they love their husbands. Literally, it means husband lovers. Sounds like a club. Husband Lovers Anonymous. And then also says, love their children at the same thing. Be a child lover. Now, often when the Bible says these kind of things, you're like going, you know, it's, it's sort of like God saying, water's wet. You know, isn't it just normal that a woman would just automatically, naturally love her husband? Isn't it just normal that women would automatically just love their kids? They don't have to be told that. Hang in there. You'll learn. <laughs> it doesn't happen that way. Often these gals, I, I, I don't, it's just, you know, love is blind. Thank goodness. Because if the gals really saw what jerks these guys were, they would never marry them. And thus the population of the earth would just go extinct. <laughs> but... You know, they have all these wonderful ideas and they, they get into marriage and they realize, boy, do I have a lot of work. <laughs> and then just as they start to make just a little bit of headway with their clot of a husband, all of a sudden, it, it multiplies times a thousand with these little urchins running around, you know. <laughs> all those horrible characteristics they've been trying to get under control with their husband are now in all their kids. <laughs> and, and now they're overwhelmed. And they're outnumbered. <laughs> They've got to be told, hang in there, keep loving them. Because there's times going, there must be something wrong with me because I want to kill them all. <laughs> hang in there. God will change your husband. Right, honey? He's doing it? <laughs> And hang in there. Your kids are leaving. <laughs> they will leave. I, I said that a while back and somebody came up going, it's not true, Brian. They don't leave. It's like a yo-yo. They leave and they come back. They leave and they come back. <laughs> it says in 1 Peter 4, 8, And above all things, have a fervent love for one another, for love covers a multitude of sins. Boy, that God would just fill up your heart with love and no matter how difficult it might be, the love that you would have for your husband and your kids would be greater still. And then, of course, the famous passage in 1 Corinthians 13, love suffers long and is kind. Just put the women's name in there. The, the wife, the, the mom, suffers long. But yet... She's kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. Love is not puffed up. It not, does not behave rudely. It does not seek its own. It's not provoked. It thinks no evil. Boy, that's easy to do, gals, isn't it? To just say, man, this guy. And so they go to the women's Bible study, and instead of the older women teaching the younger women what is good, it's, let's complain about 
how horrible our husbands are. Be careful on that, because love does not think evil. Love does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things. Toilet lids being up, clothes in the floor, all the grunts and the groans that guys do. It believes all things. Yes, God answers prayer, and we'll change this guy someday. Hopes all things, and endures all things. But listen, love never fails. Love is going to win. And if you gals can keep loving your husbands even through the stupidity that they are, keep loving the kids no matter how much foolishness is bound up in their hearts, it'll be worth it in the end. There'll be a great reward in heaven for you. I, I don't know, a special reward. But uh, So the older women need to keep teaching the younger women there is hope. Hang in there. Keep loving them. Keep being patient with them. Keep being kind with them. Keep putting up with them. God is answering your prayer. God is indeed working on them. And uh, often when gals get quite distraught, I just say, well, re remember the story about David and, uh, and Nabal? And what happened there? It says that he saved, he saved Abigail. It says, and God killed Nabal. God can deal with your husband. And then she married the king, King David. So if your husband doesn't straighten up, your prayers might do more good than you ever imagined. <laughs> but there is hope. And then it also tells them a very important verse. I think one of the most important verses in the Bible. Be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, and here we are, obedient to their husbands. Amen? <laughs> Amen. <laughs> <laughs> be discreet, be sensible. Be chaste, which is pure. Be homemakers. Literally, it means guardians of the home. Now, as you study through history and you look at cultures, women have always worked hard in the home and outside the home. And I know there are some who have said, basically, if the woman's not at home taking care of the kids, they're in sin. I, I don't buy that. I don't buy that scripturally, and I don't buy that because it's not always the case in every culture. Read Proverbs 31, when it gives the description, basically, of superwoman. <laughs> but in that passage, it says she is a businesswoman. She's out buying fields and selling fields and dealing with business. But it also gives a picture of her doing a lot of other things outside the home to take care of the family. The whole focus is to help the family. So there is a season where, I mean, obviously, if you're having babies and kids, it's, it's the best for the moms to be there with the little guys. But it's not always the case. Satan's no dummy. He's trying to make every culture and every part of the world in such a, a way to destroy the home. But if you go back in time, I mean, the gal, it wasn't a matter of going to the grocery store in an air-conditioned building, you know, taking around their sharpening cart, and, you know, filling fruit, and, you know, going and buying a plastic-wrapped chicken. It wasn't that way. I mean, it took them eight hours just to prepare, prepare one meal. 
They had to go first catch the chicken. That took an hour or so. <laughs> and then to, you know, kill it and pluck all the feathers off and get the fire going. That took a while. And, you know, so it wasn't they were sitting around, you know, waiting until 3.30 to start dinner. I mean, that wasn't the case. I mean, they, they had a full day of just stuff that gals today can do you know, in a, in a couple of hours with ovens and microwaves and vacuums and, and all of these kind of things. So it's not always the healthiest thing for a gal to be at home, uh, especially if there's not a full day's work there. The Bible makes it clear that with such idleness, um, Satan can take an advantage of that. As uh, Benjamin Franklin said, idle hands are the devil's workshop. And so... In many cases, it is more fruitful if the woman does have, even with little kids, uh, possibly a, a part-time job uh, to help keep them from getting into an idle situation. But I do not think there is any such law. But however, they do need to realize that they are guardians of the home, protectors of the home. And um, that they need to have that heart towards home. You see, a lot of times the, 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 the guys aren't appreciating their wives, letting them know, you're beautiful, I love you, that was a great meal, you know, thank you for putting out fresh flowers or whatever it is. And, and, and the gal, she's putting all this effort and work and, you know, the kids get everything dirty and break it and nobody cares. And, and so they start looking for a place to be appreciated. And so the workplace becomes a place where they, you know, they have a task, they accomplish it, and they're thanked for it. And so they go to work and their boss is appreciating them, their clients are appreciating them, and, and they're looking to the workplace for something they should be getting at home from the husband, from the kids, and that's a thankfulness and appreciation. And so, gals, even if you're not being thanked and being appreciated, and you bunch of clods need to tell your wives thank you and you appreciate it. Don't start looking outside the home for your identity. Your identity should be, number one, that you're a Christian, but number two, that your family is doing well in Christ and doing well in the home. That should be your identity. And then it says also that they need to be good. And, and literally, it means beneficent. To, to be a giving person, to be a charitable person. Uh, looking for opportunities, not just to bless your own family, to, but to bless others' family. And then to be obedient to their own husbands. Why? That the word of God may not be blasphemed. Now, what in the world does that mean? Well, hold your finger there and look over, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 5 to the second most important verse in the Bible, chapter 5, verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands. Amen. As to the Lord, getting better. For the husband is the head of the wife. Amen. As also Christ is the head of the church and is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as, Christ is just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be their own husbands in everything. Now, Paul here is saying, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, just like the church does to the Lord, in everything. You're saying, wow, this is deep. This is heavy. 
Well, Paul was talking about this whole husband and wife thing. He didn't realize that people were going to take it as husband and wife. And he, he realized at the end, in verse 32 there of Ephesians 5, this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. I wasn't trying to give you a teaching on marriage. I was trying to give you a teaching on the church. But nevertheless, the principle applies, he says, let each one of you so in particular love his own wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So it goes both ways. So at this time, the, the how uh, uh, the family worked with the woman respecting the husband and the husband, and all, that wasn't something that was so in question. It was more of how is the church towards Christ? But now it's the other way around. We have a better view of how the church is towards Christ than we do ha than have the view of marriage. And so either way, it works. And so God made all things. And why did he make marriage? Because he wanted it to be a testimony, a sermon, if you would, to the world of how our relationship is to be unto Christ. And so we, as the church, are the bride of Christ. And Christ, if you would, in, in this analogy, is, is the husband. And so we need to, as a wife, have that love and respect unto our husband, the Lord. Now, if that isn't happening, or if the non-Christian world is looking on, and they're seeing how you are treating your husband, Thus, the parallel is, well, that's also the way you're treating Christ, and thus, Christ is blasphemed by not getting a clear picture. You call yourself a Christian, you say this is a Christian marriage, a Christian home, but when I look at you, I should be seeing how you, as a believer, are towards Christ by how you treat your husband, by how you treat your wife. And so, if that is not a very clear picture then thus Christ is blasphemed. And so the church, or the uh, marriage relationship, is to be a sermon to your kids and to your neighbors of your relationship to the Lord. And if that's not the case, then Christ is blasphemed. Well, in verse 6, he says, Likewise, exhort the young men to be sober, or, or sound-minded, if you would, to be sensible. I tell the the young guys in our youth group, when you're ready to quit acting like a boy and acting like a man, we'll start treating you like a man. Jesus at 12 years old in Luke 2, he came and he said, I am ready to be about my father's business at 12 years old. And if you're 12 years old and, and you are ready to act like a man, then any ministry in this church is open to you. Whether it's on the worship team or ushering or teaching Sunday school or going on a mission trip, any ministry is open to you. Because we see scripturally that it's not wait till you're 18 or 21 or, or any of these random ages that our societies have put upon us. But when you are ready to become an adult, unfortunately, our society is saying, we know that you're still youthful if you still act like a child. So you have 18 years old acting completely irresponsible. Then you have 29 year olds acting totally irresponsible. Then you have 39 year olds and then 40 years old. And they keep, it keeps getting older and older saying, oh yeah, you know, I may be 55, but I'm still a teenager at heart. Well, you're acting like an idiot. It really has nothing to do with being use, youthful. Um, and so the young men, he's saying, and when I say the young men, I'm talking 
guys that are uh, becoming young adults. I mean, I'm talking 12 years old. You, you guys start being sensible in how you are living the Christian life. And he says, in all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works. In doctrine, showing integrity, reverence, and incorruptibility. So your life would show forth a pattern of godliness. I, I think of little Samuel. The Lord coming and beginning to speak to him as a young boy. We don't know how old he was. Maybe 10, 11, 12. David was a young man. Maybe 16, 17. We don't know when he killed the giant, Goliath. Daniel was a, definitely a young man. 14, 15, 16 we, we don't know, when he was taken off to Babylon and, and, and there he stood his ground and he said, I am not going to be corrupted by this pagan world. We see throughout the Bible young men radically standing for Christ and being a pattern of a godly living. And so uh, with you, like Daniel, stand firm. Like Joseph, throw off your garment and flee from any kind of immorality. Stand Firm in doctrine and teaching, and then show integrity, which is, again, showing a a lifestyle of wholeness. The word integrity comes from the mathematical term integer. Remember when in Matthew had integers and fractions, and an integer was a whole number. And so when we talk about integrity, we're talking about being a Oh, not a fractured person or a fraction, but a whole person. And so in your life, as Christ comes into your life and heals your life and strengthens your life, you can be a whole person, not a half a person. I act this way at school and I act a half a way this way when I'm with that crowd and I act a different way with that crowd and I act another way at home. But be a whole person, not a fraction. And in your life, show forth that integrity, whether somebody's watching or not. But you are who you are because God is your God and you're serving Him in that way. And in verse 8, also in sound speech that cannot be condemned, that one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. So you have a sound speech or literally a healthy speech. When you talk, it's healthy stuff. It says in Ephesians 4 that when you speak, let it be unto edification. People are edified and strengthened and built up by your words. Healthy speech. And in this particular case, it's referring to a private affairs. Not just healthy speech in a public arena, but privately you have healthy speech. And then it gives a a clear statement that there's nothing, like Daniel. Remember they came to try to find something on Daniel to, to... get Darius to look on him with uh, disfavor. And it's said that uh, the sad traps there in Daniel 6, they could find nothing on Daniel except he was fanatical about praying three times a day. That's it. I remember as a young man asking this little kid who was the, his dad was a leader in the church, and I, and I was just joking around. I was a teenager. I'm saying, yeah, you know, what's your dad really like at home? And he goes, oh, man, my dad, that guy, he just reads the Bible all the time. It's just, oh, he can't sit down without reading his Bible. You don't see him laying in bed without reading his Bible. He's up in the morning reading the Bible. That was it. (laughs) I thought, all right. That's it. There's nothing bad to say about you. 
that who you are is a godly example. Hold your finger there and turn over to 1 Peter chapter 2 if you would. 1 Peter chapter 2. We're almost done. Don't peter out on me. 1 Peter chapter 2, there in verse 9. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy but now have obtained mercy. Now listen to verse 11. Beloved, I beg you, as sojourners, as pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable, among the Gentiles, or the heathen, the world, that when they speak against you, not if, they will speak against you, as an evildoer, that's what they're going to make it sound like, you're an evil person, they may by your works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. That although they may speak evil of you, when the books are open. When all is known, that which is done in secret as well as that which has been done in the open, there the record will be set straight. That your life in your closet, by yourself, is a life that gives glory to God. And even though they have bad-mouthed you, as you stand before your judge, they will have nothing to say, but your life was indeed a life that was glorifying to God. Well, back in chapter 2, verse 9. Exhort bondservants to be obedient to their own masters, to be well-pleasing in all things, not answering back. So those who are in a situation where you have maybe an employer, or maybe if you're in the military, an officer, or if you're a child, your parent, or in school, your teacher, somebody who has authority over you, in particular, this is really talking about in this day and age, there were more slaves than there were free people. He's talking about slavery here, but the principle uh, is still in place. That you are living a life that's well-pleasing to them. In other words, it gives them satisfaction. Think about that. Are you the kind of student that brings satisfaction to your teacher? Are you the kind of employee that brings satisfaction to your employer? Are you the kind of kid that brings satisfaction to your parents? Are you the kind of person in the military that brings satisfaction to your commanding officer? Not are you doing the minimum, but are you doing it in such a way that blesses them? You're going out of your way. That's what he's saying here. And in verse 10, not pilfering, stealing, but showing all good fidelity, or in other words, an honest, faithful life that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. A radical concept here. That you would adorn the doctrine of Christ. That as you work in the workplace, as you study in the school, as you live, it's as if you are wearing the Bible. And as you work with your work ethic, as you talk with your healthy speech, as you react to the various things, that people are reading the Bible. As the one uh, person said, 
Preach the word, preach the word, preach the word, and if necessary, use words. This is what he's talking about here. Your life itself is a message. Hold your finger. Actually, we're done here in Titus. We're going to end here tonight. But turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And it says here in verse 2, You are our epistle, written in our hearts, known and read, notice here, by all men. If somebody, your neighbor, a guy who worked with you or for you worked for them or somebody in school with you, if they were to sit down and write what Christianity is about from their experience with you, what kind of doctrine would have been preached? I know years back when they had missionaries go into many of the Arab countries and they were going to tell them about Christianity. They said, we already know about Christianity. We saw the movie and they, they went in. This is years before the Jesus film. And they said, you're kidding, what movie? And they went in and they showed them Superman. They said, there's your God, Superman. We know all about him, you know. And they said, no, 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 that's just a movie. But we got to be careful. It wasn't just words. It wasn't just actions. It wasn't just that day. It wasn't, it really was a day. And that's really the way you acted. Those really words, words, and those are the words you used. And here he's saying, be careful as you sojourn as pilgrims and strangers that when they speak, they have to sit down and write out what you really believe and, and the doctrine of Christ only from what they've read from your life. It should be the same thing that we read in the Bible. And then one more time over to 1 Peter, and we really will end this time, really. My third closing and my fifth conclusion is 1 Peter chapter 2. There in verse 13. Therefore submit yourself to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. Why should I? Do it for Jesus. Whether to the king as supreme, or as to governors, or to those who are sent by him by the punishment of evildoers for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, as free yet not as using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king, and listen to your pastor. <laughs> That's not in there, but just write that in there. Add, add that in. In verse 18, <laughs> Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. For this is commendable if, because of conscience towards God, you're doing it for Jesus, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. For what credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, that is commendable before God. Now listen to verse 21 here. For to this you 
were called. Because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin, nor is deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. When he committed himself, but he committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. Verse 25, For you are like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and the overseer, of your souls. How is it we quit going astray? Because there was one who did not revile in return. There was one who was being unjustly treated, but yet he committed himself unto the Father who is the final judge, and it's to this we are called. As we humble ourselves, as we submit ourselves unto God, and we live a life that's proper, a life that's godly, a life that adorns ourselves with the gospel of Christ. People get touched. People get saved. People come to Christ. In particular, there in chapter 3, it says, Wives, likewise be submissive to your own husbands. How? Like Christ was unto the unjust rulers, to the Pharisees and Herod and Pilate. Even, it says, that even if some do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives. There as Jesus was hanging upon the cross, he spoke to the Father. Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. He spoke to his brother John, take care of my mother. There the thief on the cross, it says he believed on him. Why? Jesus was as a lamb dumb to the slaughter, so he said not a word. How did salvation come to that thief? How did salvation come to the Roman soldier who nailed him to the cross because of his great apologetic speech? By saying nothing. But as he humbled himself and took the grief, took the suffering, and he committed himself unto his Father, these people woke up and realized he is God. He is the Son of God. He is the way. So the Lord's going to arrange it in your homes, in your workplace, in your neighborhoods, in your schools, in your families. And that's how salvation's going to come. How is your husband going to get saved? Because you've convinced him intellectually? No. As he keeps hearing the word of God preached through your life, that he may be won by the conduct of their wives, that they may be won by the conduct of their children, that they may be won by the conduct of their co-worker, that they may be won by the conduct of their student, that they may be won by the conduct of their guy in the military next to them. When they observe your chaste conduct accompanied with fear, when they see that you're making these choices for Christ's sake, I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to talk like that. I'm not going to drink that. I'm not going to listen to that because I want to live a life pleasing to Christ every day, day after day, in every situation, even though nobody's around, even though nobody else knows about it. I know about it, and I want to live for Christ as they see that heart of reverent fear of commitment. So don't let your adornment be merely outward, arranging of the hair, wearing of gold, putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with an incorruptible beauty, 
of a gentle and a quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. That's for all of us. For wives to an unbelieving husband, yes. But it's for all of us everywhere. As they look at our character, as they look at our conduct, as they look at our life, they have to say, I need that Jesus that you serve. I need that spirit in you, in me. I love reading the book of Daniel and, and these pagans say, and Daniel, you know, has the spirit of the gods in him. <laughs> they didn't know how to talk about it. They don't know the right words. But they can see what's really happening. As they see Christ in you, see Christ in me. And so, Titus, you're in a tough place where the Christians are not reverent, honorable people, where the old men are dirty old men, the gals are depressed and getting drunk, and, and the young men, they have no vision, and they're just sort of meandering around. And, and, and listen, Titus, give them a vision. Give them a vision, not just for now. Give them a vision all the way up until their old age. And realize just because they may be old, they don't have anything to offer. They have more to offer than any time in their life they have more to offer now because of their years of constant obedience and walking with Christ and messing up. Many a time I've been comforted by an older man who I feel that all is lost and, and it's like, no, I remember back in 1938. And hear the story and, oh, thank you. It is the same thing. And how God turned that around for good. So you have a lot to offer. You young people, you got a wonderful life ahead of you. And it doesn't start when you're 18 or 25 or after you get married. It starts right now at 12 or 15 or whatever. Start it now. Fearing God, living for God, living a life that you want to be the same quality of life later on in life. Start doing it now. Lord, we thank you again that salvation comes not through great speeches or great sermons or great books, but salvation comes when people are won by observing our conduct, our life. And Lord, help us to remember that. And I know there is a time to speak. I know there is a time to preach. I know there is a time to open our mouths and testify of the truth. But Lord, it has no power, no weight if our life was not a godly life to preach beforehand. And so, Lord, we ask now in Jesus' name, as we are all convicted tonight, there's no one that hasn't been pierced by that two-edged sword. We thank you, Lord. Let the pus out and let the healing begin. But we need your power. We need your grace. And Lord, as we come now to humble ourselves before you in prayer, as we come because we know you're a mighty God who is here to save. And we know if we ask you to open up the windows of heaven, you will open up the windows of heaven. If we ask for the spirit of revival to come upon South Bay and all of San Diego, that spirit will come. And we pray according to your will, you hear us. And we have the very thing that we ask of you. And what we ask tonight, Lord, is more love, more power, more grace. And Lord, that we would be a greater light. Whatever our light has been, beam it up a thousand times more. 
Lord, that we'd be more salty. And no matter how much thirst we might have brought to the world around us, let us cause more thirst to the world around us, wanting you. Lord, here we are. We're vessels. As Paul said, we're not adequate of ourselves as anything coming from ourselves. It's only by your Spirit. Jesus, we hear your words, and they're, they're music to our ears. Apart from you, we can do nothing. Oh, how we have learned that to be so, time and time and time again. But we understand that you've given this time, a, a time, Lord, that you don't have to turn any tables over here. You don't have to drive anything out here. Lord, we have made this a house of prayer. And now, Lord, we're coming together as a family, as a congregation with that heart to agonizomai in prayer with you. Give us that spirit now of prayer and supplication. Give us the ability to press in upon you. Let us be a Jacob tonight to wrestle with our God and not let you go until you bless us. Let us be that Canaanite woman bowing at your feet, saying, Lord, just give us the crumbs when the dogs are done. We just want the, or when the children are done, just like dogs, just give us, let us eat the crumbs off the floor. Lord, we want what you have for us tonight. And we're not going to let you go. Our faith, Lord, is intact. It's here. We believe you are and a rewarder of those who diligently seek you. Reward us with just more love, more power to serve you in a more obedient, more powerful life for your glory. In Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Let's all stand together. If you have kids, if you'd release them and let them go outside and play or bring them on back in with you. If you have a conversation, hold it till you're outside. We're going to go ahead and start seeking the Lord now.